There is no question that the BJP has triumphed through the democratic process, even though it holds very many illiberal tendencies. It has demonstrated a commitment to the to democratic elections. And having said that, there is not a similar commitment to to liberal democracy. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, an entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. My name is Indy Ofrank, and I am joined today by my co-hosts Cameron Brown and Franz Asilia. In 1947, when India gained independence from Britain, it was established as a secular democracy. However, the last decade has seen significant rise in support for Hindu nationalist policies and people at the national level, with far-reaching legislative consequences. What is Hindu nationalism? And how has it gained so much popularity in recent years? What are the domestic and international consequences of these changes in India? Joining us today is Dr. Milan Vaishnev, a senior fellow and director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He has previously worked at the Center for Global Development, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and the Council on Foreign Relations. He is an adjunct professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. His primary research focus is the political economy of India, examining issues such as corruption in governance, state capacity, distributive politics, and electoral behavior. Dr. Vaishnav, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So just to start us off, could you please define Hindu nationalism for our listeners and how it differs from other forms of nationalism globally? You know, I think... Probably the simplest way of understanding Hindu nationalism is that it is the idea that Hindu culture and Indian culture are essentially synonymous. They're coterminous with one another. That, you know, India for centuries has been a homeland to Hindus. Uh, Hindus make up currently about 80% of India's population. And so, therefore, um, the country's culture, its politics, its kind of social mores um, should reflect kind of Hindu values and and Hindu tenets. And I think that's probably the easiest way of understanding Hindu nationalism. Um, You know, obviously, nationalism of all kinds is on the rise around the world. Um, And I think Hindu nationalism does fit uh, very neatly within the category of of religious nationalism. Uh, it's worth pointing out, however, that um, with Hindu nationalism is, is, is a big tent. Uh, there are very many different strands of Hindu nationalists. There are those extreme elements who would like to see essentially some version of a Hindu uh, theocratic state. Um, those people are, are not in the mainstream. They are on the fringes. And there are those who embrace the pluralism uh, that has traditionally characterized India, but would just like to see uh, Hinduism be given a certain kind of pride of place or first among equals kind of status in, in the way that the in the, in the kind of kind of country's social order runs. So there is a gamut from quite moderate to quite extreme. Yes, and Hindu nationalism is not the only type of nationalism that exists in India. So how does it deviate from other approaches to nationalism in India, such as uh, the Indian National Congress's inclusive composite culture that emphasizes unity and diversity? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the political scientist Ashutosh Varshney has a very nice way of thinking about this, where he basically says that there are kind of three uh, frames of nationalism if you look back um, uh, at Indian history. The first is a kind of territorial nationalism, that there is some kind of sacred geography that makes up modern India that is bounded by the Indus River, the Himalaya Range, uh, the Bay of Bengal, the Indian Ocean, uh, that has been home to a Indian civilization again for centuries upon centuries. Uh, then there is a second concept of nationalism, uh, at, which is a sort of cultural nationalism, that India is not a, a monolith, it is a mosaic made up of many languages, religious faiths, customs, caste organizations, uh, um, you know, regional and sub-regional traditions. And then there is a third strain of nationalism, which is the religious variant that we began this conversation with, which really sort of uh, identifies India with, uh, with kind of Hindu dominance. And if you look at the two main political parties in India, at least the two main national political parties, that is the Indian National Congress and the BJP, they represent different combinations of these three visions. So the Congress party basically has fused together territorial nationalism with cultural nationalism. And, and from that, you get this kind of Gandhian uh, syncretic view that um, you know India is a homeland to all that it, it must seek unity by embracing its unparalleled, unprecedented diversity, and that really has been until quite recently the kind of dominant strain of nationalism. And then you have the BJP, which also, of course, uh, believes in the territorial uh, nationalism, uh, that construct, but fuses it instead with the religious nationalism. So uh, out of these three different strains, you get two different combinations. Uh, and of course, it is the latter combination that is ascendant today. And I think that really helps to map out where the broader kind of you know political conflict stands in India today. So this push and pull between these two prevailing notions of Indian nationalism, Indian identity, became a lot more significant after the Bharatiya Janata Party and Nandar Modi um, came into power in 2014, and their party captured the majority of the Lok Sabha, which is the lower house of India's parliament in 2019. Um, could you explain a little bit how and why the BJP rose to power in India and was able to capture the position they have today. Well, I, I think you kind of have to turn back the clock a little bit. Um, the Hindu nationalist movement is a century-old movement. And at the time of independence in 1947, when India embarked uh, on this great gambit to be a independent, democratic, sovereign nation, um, there was a contestation at that point over what India would look like. And the secular nationalist vision of India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, who, of course, was a, 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 a key ally of Mahatma Gandhi's during the uh, independence movement, um, that side won out. And, 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 and you see that in the way in which the constitution was written, in which uh, governance was structured, in which laws were made. The Hindu nationalist variant, however, 
uh, may have been defeated, but it never disappeared. Um, it immediately shifted into opposition mode. There was a predecessor party of the BJP known as the BJS or the Bharatiya Jansung, um, which advocated for many of the same positions that the BJP stands for today. Um, and basically, Narendra Modi's victory in 2014, I think, represented uh, a number of, of changing trends. I think the first is that, uh, and the most proximate, is that the Congress party was most recently in power from 2004 to 2014. And the latter half, the second part of the Congress tenure from 2009 to 2014, was marked by a uh, severe economic slowdown, a series of paralyzing corruption scandals, real questions about um, the lack of governance, political leadership, and so on. Um, that was quite a, strike, a stark contrast with Narendra Modi, this kind of powerful, you know, executive-like figure um, who, who promised to um, kind of remake India and get its economy back on track. Uh, then you, but you also had this feeling that secular nationalism had been exhausted. That under the guise of secularism, the Congress Party and many other so-called secular parties had cynically used religion and caste and social division to suit them politically in an opportunistic kind of way, um, and so that created a kind of counter reaction. And remember, you know, Hindu, uh, India is a majority Hindu country. Um, and I think many Hindus felt that they were made to feel like a minority in their own country. Now, we can debate whether or not those those feelings are genuine, whether or not they're built on misperceptions and so on and so forth. But I think that was very much part of the grievance structure that fueled Modi's rise and then helped uh, frankly, reelect him and his party in an even with an even bigger mandate in 2019. Great. So, how does Modi and the BJP continue to be popular? So, in other words, why have opposition parties like the Indian National Congress found it difficult to compete against the BJP? BJP, excuse me, since since 2014. You know, there's a, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but you know, just getting down to brass tacks, that the, the Congress party is in a state of existential crisis. Uh, and that crisis has multiple dimensions. They have a crisis of leadership. The Congress party is a dynastic party, meaning for most of its existence, the, a member of the Nehru Gandhi dynasty has run the party. Um, Sonia Gandhi, uh, who is the widow of the uh, deceased uh, Indian prime minister, Rajiv Gandhi, now runs the party. Uh, she had handed over the reins to her son, Rahul Gandhi, uh, who um, is now the number two in the party. Uh, he has uh, led the, the, the Congress into electoral battle as it was, as it was, it was a war in 2014 and 2019, and has always been seen as, frankly, an inadequate politician, not somebody who has the hunger, the drive, the political savvy, the intellect to really... Um, uh, make a compelling case to be kind of India's leader. You also have a crisis of organization that over time, the party has kind of atrophied and withered and been hollowed out, partly because of the tightened, tightened grip 
of the family on the party, which has really erased any possibility for kind of upward mobility uh, through the ranks of the party. Um, and then thirdly, you have a kind of absence of ideology, ideology uh, or, or, or vision. Um, the, the Congress has been unable to kind of construct a sort of alternative narrative for the country that can compete with what Modi has to offer. Um, so I mentioned before there was an exhaustion with secularism. They haven't really found a way to redefine or reinvigorate secularism in, in a way that would be politically compelling. So you have a kind of perfect storm of a, a, you know, a, a prime minister who is um, unusually charismatic, who people believe is incorruptible, uh, who who radiates kind of leadership. Uh, you have a frustration with the with the kind of old regime and the old guard, and a feeling that they were elitist, that they were out of touch, um, that they weren't at all in sync with the grassroots. And, and you have a a, a major opposition party. Uh, the principal opposition party, which is not seen as politically viable at the national level. Um, and so in some ways, it's not that surprising um, that that Modi was able to thoroughly defeat the opposition in the 2019 election because there is not yet a national politician or a politician who can operate at the national level who can go head-to-head, toe-to-toe with Modi. Um, And that, of course, is a massive electoral liability. So you brought up a couple times about about secularism um, and and how it kind of has exhausted itself. And India historically has seen secularism as the government balancing these competing religious interests rather than what many would understand a lot of other nations as just a separation between um, religion and, and, and the state. Do you think this has encouraged the growth of these Hindu nationalist movements? And if so, how? I mean, unquestionably, and I think you're absolutely right that, you know, secularism in India means a very different thing than secularism in the United States or in Western Europe, for instance, uh, where it does uh, connote a firewall between the church and state. In India, uh, there was a very different version of secularism integrated into into the constitutional fab- fabric, which is the idea that the state will not be separate from religion. It can intervene in uh, the doings of, of, of various religious faiths, but it must do so on an even-handed uh, basis. So it must maintain a principal distance from all religions. So if it provides subsidies to Muslims to go on the Hajj, it must also subsidize Hindu pilgrims, right? Uh, If it is going to provide assistance to uh, educational institutions which impart religious instruction, it must try to do so in an an even-handed way. If it is going to uh, use the law to intervene or to remedy illiberal uh, activities that are part of certain uh, religious schools of thought, it must try to do so in an even-handed way. Now, the, 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 
the the beauty of that is is obvious is that it it has this this wonderful kind of balancing act um but the downside is that it is very difficult to police those lines uh who is to say that you've been even handed right it's it and it's it's very easy therefore for politicians to to violate that that kind of balancing uh, in order to 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 win elections, and I think that is part of the trap that the Congress fell into, particularly uh, uh, under Rajiv Gandhi in, in the eighties and nineties, when this kind of hypocrisy became uh, quite evident. I think to 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 a lot of Indians, and so undoubtedly that kind of hollowing out of secularism. Uh, gave rise to uh, the resurgence of Hindu nationalist movements, uh, it, you know, as well as obviously um, a number of other changes that were going on at the same time, right? I mean, it, there was tremendous social change in terms of new caste uh, politics, uh, caste being one of the principal drivers of, of, of kind of politics in India, Um an embrace of market-led uh, capitalism, greater globalization, liberalization. This really uh, remade kind of Indian social order, and, and Hindu nationalism was able to present itself as the kind of super framework that would allow India essentially to navigate this these very choppy waters. Dr. Vaishnav, we, we have spent last... Half, the first half of the podcast talking about the history of nationalism in, in India. Now we want to start zoning in on what you began to talk about towards the end of of your last answer, which was how has this Hindu nationalism manifested itself in politics and in legislation in India um, in the last since Modi came to power, especially. Well, I think the, the 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 imprint has become much more visible post May 2019 when Modi and his party came back to power. Um, there were several big ticket uh, actions that that have occurred in the past, you know, uh, twelve months. The first is the decision in August 2019 to abrogate Article 370 of the Constitution, which uh, for decades had given the uh, state of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, this conflicted, contested northern Indian state, which is India's only Muslim-majority state, it had given it a semblance of constitutional autonomy. And that goes back to the history of how Jammu and Kashmir acceded to the Indian Union. Um, This was always seen as unfair, as biased, as uh, essentially hindering national integration and something that the BJP and its its predecessor, the BJS, has long advocated for. Uh, Number two, in December 2019, the Modi government uh, passed in parliament the Citizenship Amendment Act, uh, which you might recall provoked intense street protests. Uh, The act essentially provides an expedited pathway to citizenship to illegal migrants who have uh, sought safe haven in India, who come from one of India's immediate neighbors, Afghanistan, Pakistan, or Bangladesh, provided that they do not belong to the Muslim faith. Uh, So it applies to Christians, Buddhists, Sikhs, Parsis, Jains, Hindus, 
and so on. Um, and this, of course, raised the ire of a lot of uh, Indians who believe in the secular principles of the Constitution. Um, more recently, we have seen uh, at a subnational level or a state level uh, in states like Uttar Pradesh, India's largest state, uh, a law that essentially um, bans forcible religious conversions uh, and tries to police interfaith marriages. Um, there is a conspiracy theory that some on the Hindu right believe in called Love Jihad, uh, whereby Muslim males are essentially um, uh, engaged in a conspiracy to marry Hindu women to convert them to Islam, to grow Islam's numbers. Um, this is a conspiracy theory. It is, it, is, it is not something that is a concern in India, but it has become uh, a major trope of the Hindu nationalist movement. Um, so you kind of have to disaggregate. There are some large, uh, big-ticket items, Article 370, uh, the, 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 the Citizenship Amendment Act. There is something called the uh, National Register of Citizens, which is a all-India uh, enumeration the BJP would like to conduct in order to identify illegal immigrants who are taking up residence in India and deport them. That's important because uh, the CAA, the Citizenship Amendment Act, and the NRC interact with one another. If you are a Hindu who is an illegal immigrant, the CAA gives you a lifeline essentially to stay in the country, whereas if you are a Muslim, because the CAA doesn't cover Muslims, um, you could be deported or detained. Um, so these are big, almost national level issues, right? And then you have subnational things which um, have to do with uh, the changes in textbooks to eliminate any mention of the Islamic contribution to Indian civilization. Um, these love jihad interfaith marriage laws, uh, bans on not only the slaughter of cows, cows being a kind of sacred animal to, to Hindus, but bans on the consumption of beef. Um, so I think you can you can analyze this at multiple levels, but um, there has been quite a shift, I would say, in the past six years. And um, Dr. Vaishnav, nationalism in other places throughout the world has also manifested itself through economic protectionism. Um, have we seen some, something similar in India with uh, Prime Minister Modi, or has Hindu nationalism taken a different type of economic policy? Well, you know... I, I think that we have seen an inward turn, undoubtedly. I think the empirical evidence is pretty clear. I think Hindu nationalism, and this is something that the author Vinay Sitapati uh, makes in a, in a recent book on the history of the BJP, Hindu nationalism doesn't really have a doctrine on the economy or on the state. There is a consensus in uh, the BJP and, um, and the BJP-affiliated movements on cultural and social issues. There is not so much of a consensus on economic issues. Uh, however, there is a very strong uh, strain of nativism, of autarky, of protectionism uh, within the movement, particularly among members of the RSS. The RSS is the um, spiritual, ideological fountainhead for the BJP. The BJP is an unusual political movement in that it is a political wing of a larger constellation of Hindu nationalist organizations, which range from 
the RSS to uh, women's uh, wing to uh, you know uh, labor unions to agricultural farmers groups and so on and so forth. Uh, and so this strain is is quite dominant, and it's clearly something that has um, seeped into the, the, the halls of power. I, I think there is a conflict very much, and that's why you see a lot of cognitive dissonance within the government, which is they understand on the one hand the, uh, the need to liberalize, to attract investment, uh, to uh, integrate further with the global economy, because that is where the foreign direct investment, for instance, is going to come from. At the same time, they look at the struggling nature of Indian industry, of small and medium enterprises, and think that India should throw up barriers. And so it, it, it is uh, not an easily characterizable uh, kind of economic policy. But I think the net effect of what we're seeing, particularly on the trade side, is a pretty clear inward turn. So going back to the policies that you talked about, um the revoked autonomy in Kashmir, the citizenship pathway, um, religious conversion ban, all of these coming out of, um, you know, Hindu nationalist uh, people in government and legislation. So in what ways has have these embodiments of Hindu nationalism and legislation and in politics, um, how, how have they affected democracy in India and people's people's view of democracy in India? It's a really good question. Um, you know, there is no question that the BJP has triumphed through the democratic process. In other words, there is a, a you know popular legitimation of the party. Um, uh, and even though it holds very many illiberal tendencies and beliefs, um, it has demonstrated a commitment to the uh, to democratic elections, and I think that's an important point uh, for your listeners to understand. Um, is that it? It believes because Hindus are such a huge majority of the population that elections actually you know it work in its favor. Uh, having said that, um, there is not a similar commitment to to liberal democracy. Uh, again, a point that that Vinay Sitapati makes in his work, um, and so how do we? How does this manifest? I think obviously it manifests in the kind of Hindu majoritarianism that we've seen, which threatens to render Muslims and other religious minorities kind of second class citizens um, as a kind of permanent underclass. And I think you know the prospect of that is why we've seen a, a lot of pushback towards these citizenship laws. Uh, number two, we've seen, I think, a incredible intolerance for dissent, uh, particularly, you know, those who disagree with this ideology and who have criticized Modi, the BJP uh, and the government um, uh, their voices have been curtailed. The government has sought to use its authorities uh, in in ways that could silence them. This is not new insofar as India has pretty regressive laws that allows for the government to, um, for instance, levy uh, uh, a criminal penalties on defamation, not just civil penalties. Um, you know, the colonial era law on sedition is still very much on the books and is, is regularly used to silence critics. Um, but I think what's different 
today compared to when these tools were used by the Congress is now they are part of a coherent ideological worldview as opposed to just um, deployed opportunistically to, 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 to punish opponents here and there. Um, the, the other difference is that because the BJP is part of this larger constellation or family of organizations, it is able to amass and mobilize not just official governmental power on its behalf, but it's also able to wield very impressive and intimidating street power. Um, mobs, groups, in order to apply social pressure to attain some of its objectives. Um, so I think that if we're being honest and we take a step back, uh, there have been a great many reversals to liberal democracy in the past six years. Some of these reversals have built on uh, constitutional, legal uh, infirmities and weaknesses, which have been there for a long time, which others have exploited. And some of them are, are, are new. It, it has not been the case for uh, several decades that we've seen such a concentration of power within the hands of the executive in the prime minister's office. A, a desire to um, to really govern the country in a more centralized way, which, you know, as you can imagine, in a country as large and as diverse and as fractious as India with 1.3 billion people, um, I would argue is a foolhardy thing to pursue. So we talked a lot about the relationship between the BJP and Prime Minister Modi with regards to its domestic policy and its relationship to India. Um, we're going to turn a little bit to its relationship to India's foreign policy and, and its relations with other countries. And this becomes especially apparent after last June, where China and Indian soldiers came to blows in eastern Ladakh province. Um, we've also noticed other changes, like relations improving with the U.S. over the past five years. In what ways has the BJP and Prime Minister Modi redefined India's foreign policy even beyond these developments? Well, I, I think the prime minister has articulated this concept that he believes India should be a leading power rather than merely a balancing power. Um, for many years, India has been seen and I think it's been part of its self-perception also um, in some political quarters uh, to be um, somewhat reticent to kind of throw its weight around on the international stage, um, to embed itself in, um, in uh, a doctrine known as non-alignment, where essentially India would refuse to sort of be in anyone's corner for fear of essentially being kind of manipulated or being treated as a pawn. Um, I think, you know, Modi has tried to depart from that in some, some interesting and important ways. One is he has tried very much to make India a much bigger player on the global scene. If you take an issue like climate change, for instance, India has always been seen as an obstructionist force when it comes to stringent uh, global climate uh, negotiations. In Paris, however, at the Paris Climate Talks, uh, India very proudly positioned itself as being part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Um, similarly, if you look at 
some of its its commitments in the kind of multilateral regional front is is tried to project kind of greater engagement. Uh, and undoubtedly, there has been this long tension between India and China. Um, and they share a contested border. There has obviously uh, there have been wars fought uh, over that border and that contested territory. I think that uh, Modi has understood, uh, and his government has articulated a policy that is much more aggressive vis-a-vis China, and trying to rectify the balance of power within Asia. And as a result, that has uh, undoubtedly brought the United States and India closer together, where there has been really, at a leadership level, I think, a much greater strategic convergence between the United States and India in terms of how the two countries uh, collectively view China, China's expansionist push, China's rise, and the kind of future of the Asia Pacific. Um, And that's, you know, no small matter. Um, That is not to say that India has completely rejected this idea of strategic autonomy. It does not want to be a formal treaty ally of the United States. Um, It does not want to cut off its traditional relationships with countries like Iran, countries like Russia. Those are, just to mention, two very important regional partners. However, uh, I think it realizes that... um, Uh, It is in its own national self-interest to draw closer to the United States, not just because of strategic and military positioning, but also, frankly, because India requires the investment and technology that uh, a country like the United States can provide. Dr. Vaishnav, to wrap us up today, we want to look towards the future. We want to know what you think the BGP, the BJP, uh, have in mind for future policies in India and what you think the BJP will feasibly accomplish as long as they continue to have significant legislative and political power in the country? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, just on the, on the issue of political power, uh, the BJP has suffered setbacks at the state level. There's no question that um, it's not as if um, it has been only a one-way street in which it's accumulated more power over time. It has definitely given back a lot of power in, in critical uh, states. But at the national level, if one looks out to say that 2024, which is when the next general elections would be held, of course, a lot can change between now uh, and then. It's it, it's still three years away. But uh, there is no, in my view, uh, immediate a political threat to the BJP at the national level. Again, uh, a lot could change in three years, but if I just, you know, if elections were held tomorrow, um, there's no question this government would be brought back. Um, what does that mean? That means that um, they are operating with a 10 or 15 year timeline in mind in terms of how they might remake kind of Indian society and Indian politics. So in addition to some of the big changes I mentioned before, uh, one of the action items that is on the BJP's agenda is to usher in what's known as a uniform civil code or UCC. India, as part of its kind of composite culture, unity and diversity setup uh, going back decades now, provided for different religious faiths to be governed by different uh, personal laws. And there are many people who have felt 
that um, actually that doesn't fly anymore, that you can't have separate laws of inheritance, of property, of marriage, of divorce for Muslims and for Christians and for Hindus. You should have a uniform civil code. And that is something that uh, may not be legislated tomorrow or even next year, but is something certainly on the BJP's agenda. Um, I mentioned this idea of a National Registry of Citizens, and NRC, which is something that uh, the government, I think, remains committed to, although uh, it is uh, very strategic about how it talks about that because it is not uniformly popular in all parts of the country. Um, and so right now that issue is on the back burner, but it is something that mobilizes their base, particularly in in kind of strategic parts of North India. So um it is, it is something which may be on the back burner, but which, which won't go away. Um, that, so that's really, I think, on the, on the kind of social political side. I think on the economic side, it's a bit less clear because I think Modi has had this vision of um, having a $5 trillion economy by the year 2024. This was pre-coronavirus. That looks very unlikely given the kind of economic hardship that India has felt. But he very much sees um, his role as being an economic modernizer. I, I think where we've seen that emphasis succeed, and so therefore we're likely to see more of it, is his government has really invested in using public money to further what I would call private goods. So things like toilets, electricity connections, water connections, things that can be delivered to individual households. Um it's just contrasted with things like public education, public health care, which are far more complex and obviously have a lots of spillover. Um, I think he sees himself as the architect in some ways of a kind of modern welfare state. I would expect that to be a continued uh, push in this second term. Uh, but I do think that there is going to have to be a reckoning about how India is going to provide jobs for the nearly 1 million people who enter the labor force every month. Manufacturing and industry has historically constituted a very small share of Indian GDP. Uh, but yet the only pathway we know for large countries to provide massive amounts of employment is through that channel. Uh, but, it, but if India is to be successful there, they are going to have to grapple with um, this inward turn and how they are going to tap into export markets, how they're going to tap into global value chains, how they're going to tap into um, the uh, feeling amongst many multinationals that they would like to offshore from China to other countries, but again, um, may only be willing to do so in, in countries that really welcome their investment and, 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 and want to create new export hubs. So it's unclear where that is going to end up, although I do think it's very much going to be part of the debate for the, for the years to come, because, you know, that really is going to be what I think uh, uh, an important part of the legacy is whether or not Modi can live up to his rhetoric of getting India's economy back on track. And frankly, to date, his record has been quite mixed. Dr. Vaishnav, thank you so much for joining us today um, for this discussion. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and to the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. 
Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.